0: Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends feel free to subscribe Coming up on today's show The missing murdered indigenous women report has been tabled. Will it help or hurt the cause? Trump's European tour continues followed by a baby balloon. We'll update you And China is warning its citizens not to travel to the United States Are Americans detaining Chinese the way China is detaining Canadians? We'll find out. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Talking about uh, the uh, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women Report, John Iveson has an interesting column in the National Post today. Uh, the report is devastating, but its uncompromising nature may limit its impact. Even right, uh, Even right-thinking people who are appalled by the victimization statistics are likely to recoil. At the charge, they are complicit in genocide. To talk more about this, uh, the author is with us, John Iveson. John, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. No uh, in your uh, In your column, you say the report's release seems uh, set to stoke division rather than engender goodwill. Explain that.
1: Well, I think this was an opportunity to uh, for a new dawn in uh, Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadian relations. Um, you know, if everybody had come together to condemn what was an unacceptable past, to commit to a better future, we could have moved on in, in some kind of spirit of reconciliation. But, but there really wasn't none of that in this report. And I would contrast that with the the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, which came out uh, in 2015. You know, when that came out, there was there was widespread agreement, widespread recognition across canadian society that the residential schools was a dark moment in the nation's history and the trc chairman who was uh, justice murray sinclair who's now a senator came out and said that uh you know this is a this was a we call on the country to unite in an effort to build better relations between indigenous and non-indigenous people again there was none of that yesterday and um and i think that because it was the, the language used was so inflammatory uh, a lot of people will recoil from it, and then, uh, maybe the politicians will pay it less heat.
0: So, what was the objective here—to identify the problem or also provide some sort of solution moving forward?
1: Well, I think it was—it was almost shock tactics. The use of the genocide word, um, you know, essentially implying that the the bulk of the citizenry is engaged in trying to annihilate the indigenous minority. I think that that is counterproductive, and it, uh, it certainly got everybody's attention, but, but not in a good way. Um, you know, it was a political decision to use that phraseology, and I think it's going to rebound because, um, you know, even Justin Trudeau, who is now using the term genocide, he's saying the report says, uh, the report calls it genocide, um, he's far less enthusiastic about this than he was, for example, about the, the TRC report four years ago. Hmm. Uh,
0: is it Genocide.
1: Well, this is a, an academic point almost. I mean, there are academics lining up on either side of this yeah. who suggest that, you know, if you take the strict UN definition as laid down um, in the, the UN Declaration in 1948, that there was a, a systemic element here. Um, certainly, when you look at uh, residential schools, uh, Raphael Lemkin, the, the Polish Jewish scholar who, who def- defined genocide, uh it says a coordinated plan to destroy the foundations of a national group with the name with the aim of annihilating the group um, sinclair four years ago used the term cultural genocide and I was, was just about
0: i was just about to mention that uh, John it is removing one's culture and identity, which is certainly something that had happened is that considered genocide
1: well that when sinclair used it, there was not a lot of debate about it because it did seem that the residential school system was trying to you know the families were disrupted to prevent the transmission yeah. of cultural values and therefore uh, it it could fall into under the, the the umbrella of cultural genocide but it was clear he was talking about a past policy and that now that that was past us we had to do better and we were going to move on that is not the sense here in fact um Marian Buller, the 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 chief commissioner, was pretty clear that she sees this problem as an ongoing one, a deliberate race, identity, and gender-based genocide that is that is actually getting worse. And you know, you t- certainly there were people coming out, like Romeo Dallaire, who, who witnessed first the the real genocide in Rwanda, like Erwin Kotler, the respected former justice minister, who said. That he didn't think this uh, justified the use of the term genocide. Uh, what is happening in Canada today is clearly not um, in my opinion, at least the the, uh, the attempt to annihilate the uh, indigenous minority.
0: so uh, as as we try to break this down, is is it genocide because of the result of the negligence? And, and lack of empathy here, but not necessarily the intent. In other words, the intent wasn't to go out and, and and remove a group of people from society, but the neglect and the negligence has allowed that to happen. Is that genocide?
1: Well, I think that the the uh, I mean, we're dancing on the head of a pin here. You yeah. can argue this for yeah. for all eternity, mm-hmm. but my sense is that in the past, Canadian government policy in the form of the residential school system was an attempt at cultural genocide. I mean, there was a deliberate attempt to to make sure that the the values and cultures of of that particular group was not passed on to the next generation. I don't think that that anybody could point the finger at the, the Trudeau government in particular and suggest that it is trying to wipe out a culture. In fact, they've just brought in legislation to preserve indigenous languages, which would seem uh, an act of trying to preserve that culture rather than annihilate it. So I don't think that the charge sticks today. Maybe historically there was some uh, justification for it.
0: So what will happen at the end of this report? There's no shortage of reports that have been shelved. The prime minister said this one won't. What's different about this situation, John?
1: I don't think there's anything different about it. I think that the, the... the incendiary nature of it is going to turn people away from it. Therefore, there won't be as many demands for its provisions to be put into place. The government is going to establish a, a, a to try and pull together some kind of national action plan. Um, you know, it remains to be seen what's going to be in that. I think it's clear pretty much already they are not going to adopt the justice provisions that were suggested, i.e. making... Uh, um, if you're uh, uh, guilty of murdering an Indigenous woman, that you're almost immediately guilty of first-degree murder. The Liberals are saying, well, that's almost like mandatory minimum sentences. We're moving in the opposite direction um, from limiting the the discretion of judges to pass sentence. So I I think a whole bunch of these things are are flawed. The the recommendations are flawed. There are 230 recommendations. So you you could quite easily take a a number of the more logical ones and pull them together and say, you've acted upon it. So I don't think it will be completely uh, shelved, but at the same time, um, you know, this is an attempt to to transform Canadian society at all levels. And I think that the the measures that will be adopted are much more limited and focused on the immediate issue of Indigenous uh, women's safety. For example, uh, establishing an Indigenous Human Rights Ombudsman so that if you've got a complaint about the way that the uh, the police or the justice system has treated you, there's somebody to go to. You know, I think that's a sensible suggestion. It, it mm-hmm. deals immediately with the, with the issue at hand, and it doesn't go into trying to transform society, which, you know, let's face it, is not going to happen.
0: Uh, how has, you talked about how the Prime Minister received this report as opposed to the Truth and Reconciliation report. Uh, when that was received, he said he would implement all of them or certainly work towards it in some way, not quite as ambitious this time out.
1: Well, at that time, he was the leader of the third party, and at that time, he could say, what the heck you he like? It's very different days. When you're Prime Minister, there is a, a, a responsibility upon you that, there was, that he did not have then. In fact, when the report TRC report came out, he said he was going to implement whatever was in the federal area of jur- jurisdiction before he'd even read it properly.
0: Uh, What do you you make of him not using the word genocide, someone from the crowd taunting him to, he didn't, and now reversing that? Well,
1: he he hasn't reversed fully. If you look at what he said in Vancouver... They've
0: referred to it as genocide. He referred to it.
1: He said the report mentions it, calls it genocide. He didn't say, I agree that it is a genocide, which um, we will be watching for.
0: Um, Was the objective of this report to figure out who is killing Indigenous women or why it is being ignored and not investigated?
1: That, to me, is the biggest failing of the whole thing. It does not do that. Um, Who
0: is killing Indigenous women?
1: Largely Indigenous men. That's the unspoken truth.
0: Why is that not out, John?
1: Because I guess it's politically incorrect to say so,
0: but... We had a guest on from McMaster University yesterday uh, talking about this, and I and I asked her the question, uh, who is killing uh, Indigenous women? And she said, it's not about laying blame on who is killing women. It's it's about the systemic racism that got us there.
1: Well, I think that, that is the, the, the real problem, is that because they tiptoed around this issue. And, you know, $92 million and 1,200 pages later, the commissioners still don't know who is committing the violence against women.
2: They they,
1: they mention at one point that, that they're being targeted from all sides by partners, family members, acquaintances, and serial killers, but they don't de- delve delve any deeper to quantify that statement.
0: Yeah, they will jump on the you know they will use the Picton case as as an example of that.
1: Right, but the the only statistical backup they use is a footnote to a statistics Canada report from 2014, and even in that report, it's not spelled out. Exactly, who uh, is committing the the act of violence? It talks about um, the, the the victim violent victimisation rate for Aboriginal women is three times that for non-Aboriginal women. Uh, it talks about spousal violence against Indigenous women being three times uh, the rate in the rest of society. It's clear that there is a problem of of the normalization of violence in indigenous communities.
0: So I... I,
1: I, And it's clear, let me just... Go ahead, yeah, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. There is context to that. There is obviously a history of childhood maltreatment, there's mental health issues, there's Mm -hmm. substance abuse, Mm -hmm. all of which are higher in indigenous communities, and all of which you could trace back to the residential school system or some other government policy in the past. But for for there to be no quantification of that problem in this 1,200-page report seems to me to be a major oversight.
0: So will changing Canadians, uh, non-Indigenous Canadians' values about the Indigenous community stop Indigenous men from killing Indigenous women?
1: I think it's a, it's a societal problem. I mean, you Always, can certainly
0: it... see how these conditions lead to this sort of tension, lead to spousal abuse. I mean, you can certainly see the tie-in.
1: For sure, for sure. I mean, it, there's economic reasons, there's any number of reasons. Sure. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think that what all of us would like is that there is a, a mutual accommodation between indigenous and non-indigenous society, and that we learn from from this issue. We take measures to make it less likely. You know, for example, um, you know the ombudsman I mentioned, or uh, measures to counter the idea that violence is normalised. Um, you know that changes. Things do change over time, and I think that over time, if the right measures were taken. That sense that violence is normal because it happened to me as a child, and therefore I'm going to beat yeah. my children too. Yeah. Those things do change, but but it requires both sides of the equation to change and to mutually accommodate. And I think that that's the problem with this report. The core problem with it is it only urges change from non from uh, non Indigenous mm. Canadians.
0: Politically correct. Um, does this report suggest or give give Canadians the feeling, the assumption that it's white people that are killing Indigenous women? I
1: think that that, that they, well, the use of the word genocide
0: suggests that's the case. Like, like that's uh, that's that's my first interpretation was uh, who who are killing these women and that it's you know going way back when for from from the beginning of colonization it's the same sort of thing happening again that's that's to me how this is sounding as a and and again when i'm asking who's killing indigenous women nobody seems to have an answer
1: because they, they did not look into the question
0: <sighs> uh and again not using that as a scapegoat in any way but still a key ingredient to all of this so where do you think this is going? What's going to happen? How does this, how, how does this, uh, what can be done between now and the next election?
1: Not much. I mean, let's face it. We're we're in, in an election. The parliament breaks in three weeks. There's, there's nothing in, in here that's likely to see the light a day before an election. I mean, it'll be interesting. The parties you would hope would use some of the recommendations, some of the more sensible recommendations in their platforms. And I'm sure they will. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not all hopelessness. If you if you read the if you read the report, there are some some good things in there. But um, but boy, did they eclipse the good stuff with uh, with a headline that just is going to turn a lot of people off.
0: Uh, is uh, all of this enough to make Canadians forget about the Jody Wilson-Raybould scenario, especially those in the Indigenous community?
1: I don't know about that. I mean, that—that that, uh, that, I think that's a, a kind of separate issue. Although it was—it was almost satirical the way that the report called for um, uh, for uh, indigenous women to be put in leadership roles. And, uh,
0: mm, exactly. You could,
1: see, you could see Justin Trudeau perhaps raising his eyebrows at that, thinking, "Well, we've tried that and it didn't really work for us."
0: So is 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 this a bonus for the prime minister heading into the election or not? Is this would this help him or him? No,
1: I think he could he could probably have done without this. It's it's become so controversial that to embrace it I think is uh, is not a vote winner. Um, but you know he's he's already committed to this to this file, so um, I could see him cherry picking bits of the report and pulling together some kind of plan and saying, look, we've responded to it.
0: Uh, will we still be talking about this one week from now? This is an issue that if we're
1: not talking about it one week from now, we, we will probably be talking about it five years from now, ten years from now. It's it's, it's an issue that, that bubbles up every now and again. It's it's not going away. I think things are changing, though. I mean, yeah. you know, I think that the the apology. I've covered this file for fifteen years now, and, and it is definitely changing. Um,
0: How is it changing, John?
1: Well, I think that opinions in broader society are more. Yeah accepting that Canada has to do better.
0: Yeah, and, and more are simply aware of the story now.
1: Right, right. I mean, I think the the, the, the apology that Harper made in the House of Commons was the start of that. The, the, the TRC, which he said in, in train, um, and, and Trudeau adopt, adopted most of its recommendations, uh, raised awareness again. I think, you know, this is back in the news, so it will raise some awareness, but I think the problem is in this case, it, it, people are going to be... Upset by it,
0: yeah, by the term. And again, how are Canadians supposed to feel after this? Are we supposed to go through a period of guilt before we reconcile?
1: Well, that that seems to be the the game here is finger pointing and blame the blame game, and I think it's pretty unfortunate because it. Uh,
0: I don't think it had to be like that. And at the end of the day, as you mentioned, could turn people off what the real issue real issue is here at hand. Yeah. Uh, John Iveson has been with us, columnist for the National Post. The column is Missing Murdered Indigenous Women Report is Devastating, but its uncompromising nature may limit its impact. John, uh, great column. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Trump continues in Europe. uh, Demonstrations going on. He's met with Prime Minister Theresa May. Uh, where they hailed the special relationship between the U.S. and the U.K. Lots of, uh, I I guess, um, uh, different opinions on how big the crowds are, whether the crowds are supporters and the crowds are protesters. Uh, One thing we do know is the Trump baby balloon is bouncing around and in full form for everyone to see. Uh, Let's go right to the source and find out what's happening. Let's uh, bring in Dr. Andrew Glencross, Senior Lecturer Department of Political and International Relations, uh, Aston University in Birmingham and is with us now. Uh, Dr. Andrew, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated.
3: Nice to be with you again, Scott.
0: So, uh, your thoughts, Andrew, so far on Donald Trump's visit to the UK? I mean, we're hearing so many different uh, opinions on this side of the pond. How is it where you... what, What is it that you see right now?
3: Well, it's quite an epic state visit. It's really blown away a lot of conventions when it comes to how you would expect any... Foreign leader to behave, and particularly the most powerful man on the on the planet, and so it's really being very divisive over here.
0: So uh, we've heard. uh, How is the UK feeling about this? Does it depend on who you ask? Is it like Brexit? Is it an even even split? Uh, How how is how is the UK reacting?
3: The best polling we have suggests that only thirty percent really of the UK population is pro Trump. That means it's much less. Than say what we have, which is more 50 50 with Brexit, but it doesn't mean that there aren't some unsavoury elements in that anti-Trump demonstration. So that you know, there's some quite unsavoury things going on in terms of how he's being received as well.
0: So what is happening at this point, demonstration-wise? Are there protests still happening? Where are we with that? There are
3: some in Scotland. There's certainly gatherings in Westminster. In London, which Jeremy Corbyn addressed, instead of being able to talk with Trump, who rebuffed the overtures by the leader of the opposition, Corbyn, he then took to the streets to actually denounce Trump in terms of his attitude to global warming, international governance, and all those things.
0: So uh, in regard to Jeremy Corbyn and Donald Trump, Jeremy, as you mentioned, Jeremy Corbyn uh, uh, offered to speak with Trump. Trump turned him down. Your thoughts on that?
3: Well, again, this isn't very diplomatic, and it's not the kind of thing that you want someone to be saying directly to the British public when they are your official state guest. But, of course, Trump just wants to play by his own rules. That's why there's the baby blimp, as you mentioned, on display in London, because if he doesn't get his way, he has a tantrum. So, again, he's had his way, and he said that he won't talk to Jeremy Corbyn.
0: So are there, uh, getting back to to the crowds, are there a significant amount of people on the streets that have been protesting, and have there been a significant amount of Trump supporters there?
3: The Trump supporters have been very scarce. In fact, yesterday, the police were surprised, apparently, by how few people were actually on the streets to actually greet him when he was driving over to Buckingham Palace. It's been much more a case of the crowds being anti-Trump demonstrations.
0: So uh what about his meetings with Theresa May? We heard when this started that there wasn't going to be uh, a lot of chatter between the two. Uh he he certainly hasn't been very complimentary over the over the past uh uh when when making reference to her, but then all of a sudden said he would want her part of some sort of trade negotiation. Some sort of uh what are you thinking of, what are your thoughts on asking her her opinion at this stage of her career?
3: Well, I mean, she's nearly at the end of her prime ministership and the relations have been lukewarm at best between the two. This is hardly Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. So it's nice, at least in a sense, to hear Donald Trump praising Theresa May and suggesting that if she stuck around, there could be some kind of negotiation on the trade front between the UK and the US. But all bets are off when it comes to who Theresa May's successor will be. And Donald Trump there has stuck his oar in, as we say, suggesting that Boris Johnson would be the man to replace her, ideally.
0: Uh, so what's it like watching the evening news in in, uh, in the UK of this week?
3: It's pretty messy because we've got our own domestic drama and quite exceptionally we have a foreign dignitary, a state dignitary visiting and actually stirring up that drama because he's refused to meet with Corbyn, he's suggested that Boris Johnson would make an excellent prime minister, and he's even gone to meet Nigel Farage tonight as well. So all of these things are coming together in a swirling mess that is quite unprecedented.
0: So how is the UK viewing the fact that, you know, I mean, obviously visiting dignitaries aren't supposed to mess in local politics, whether it's, it's Brexit or what have you. How do, how do Britons feel about him offering his opinion, especially when it comes to who will replace Theresa May?
3: Well, I mean, if you're Nigel Farage or you support him or you're a supporter of Boris mm. Johnson, you love that kind of intervention. But for the most part, it's all very off-putting. And I think as much as it also can be seen as perhaps a bit anti-American, it also suggests that we really have a loss of faith in the credibility of our own politicians who, in a sense, allowed this situation to fester with the departure, the imminent departure of Theresa
0: May. Uh, what about his agenda moving forward? Uh, many have said that, that his schedule is a little light, considering.
3: It is, but of course with Trump, you never know how much it's about his personal, in a sense, ambitions and pleasures, as well as also his potential his commercial interests. Because, of course, he's taken the presidential office in a very new direction when it comes to mixing the personal, the business, and the political
0: Talk about that with his visit to his golf club there.
3: Well, precisely. And that's the kind of thing that obviously has led to specific complaints in Scotland, where he has this big resort outside Aberdeen, which has been hugely contested just for its environmental footprint. Uh,
0: how, How will we view this once it's over? How do you compare this to past presidential visits?
3: Well, I mean, the best person to ask there probably would be the Queen. Not that she would say anything, but mm. I think she must have found it absolutely astonishing for this president to visit her seventh or eighth, I believe, president that she's met. And on that basis, um, getting her thoughts on just how unusual, how different, how, in a sense, awful it's been for her as a representative of the UK. I think that would really be um, a. Ast- Interesting
0: to find out. I, I mean, oh, wouldn't it be fascinating to talk to her about that? Especially considering all the leaders that she has met over the years. Where she, where she puts this visit? Um, talk a little bit about uh, the royals' involvement here. Um, obviously, uh, the big dinner uh, last night and and uh, the royals were there uh Meghan markle was not there uh, has there been much chatter about uh, her absence or is the fact that she's on maternity leave is that is that uh is that uh, enough to keep people happy
3: i think she gets really a pass on that but of course there's been a lot of speculation as to what was said and what wasn't said perhaps because you really had a very large royal entourage i uh, think an incredible number of members of the royal family present for the state banquet, so pulling out all the stops, which is in effect a government decision. But of course, the royals themselves have their own thoughts about what on earth it means to get into bed with Trump, in metaphorically speaking on this occasion. But everyone is very tight-lipped about how they played it.
0: Is that what it appears? Is that how it appears here that they are in bed? Why pull out all the stops? What's the objective here?
3: Well, if we go back to timing, this was a visit that was orchestrated and planned long in advance, where the purpose would have been to show off the potential for transforming the special relationship from a security one to something that would cover more in the base, on the basis of trade and the economy after brexit but Of course, brexit has been postponed is put on hold, and as a result, the purpose of this visit has, it in a sense, disappeared. And so everything is pretty messy on that basis.
0: What about the mayor of London and the comments going back and forth on Twitter between uh, he and Donald Trump? Um, who, who started this? Was it Trump that started this or was it the mayor?
3: Um, it's, it's normal, you could say, to think that the lesser politician, the politician perhaps who needs to have an agenda, a target would be the one to start it so that would be obviously the mayor of london it plays well domestically to criticize trump about his policies on diversity on the um, environment but of course it's astonishing that trump responded and responded in kind with the kind of ad hominem that you just would never expect a sitting president to actually resort to and of course that means it escalated to global attention Quite extraordinary.
0: How is this being received, what, you know, what's going on between he and the mayor? Well,
3: it certainly doesn't hurt Sadiq Khan, the mayor of London, but it just puts British diplomacy on the back foot when it comes to then trying to suggest that the UK and the US have the same values, have the same views about global trade, for instance, because here you have the mayor of the capital, England's by far largest city saying something that is about not being able to do business, not being able to sit down and talk with Trump, and yet we want to trade deal with him. It's all very contradictory.
0: Uh, what do you make of uh, Trump describing uh, the mayor and, and the Labour leader as negative?
3: Well, I think that's straight out of the, of the vocabulary of Donald Trump, as if he only surrounds himself, of course, with people who are positive, who would want to say yes to him. But of course we know that if you're going to take it to something in the trade domain, then you need to be able to say no. You need to have your red lines. But of course Donald Trump doesn't seem to like and respect red lines. So that suggests we're going to have an awkward time if we want to do a kind of deal on trade or other issues with the US whilst Trump is president.
0: Uh, We talked earlier about weighing in on on domestic politics, and and as you mentioned, uh, the President thought uh, Jeremy Hunt and Boris Johnson would do a good job for uh, the Tories. Does this hurt or help their chances? It's a bit of a mixed bag, because
3: if you think about the general public, the way in which the media reports that, that would be seen probably as not a very helpful endorsement. But amongst... MPs of the Conservative Party, the Conservative membership base more broadly. I don't think that's a bad endorsement to have at this stage, at least. Uh,
0: would any would anyone uh, have uh, told him to would anybody have corrected him on any of his protocol, whether it's weighing in on domestic politics? There was an interesting shot yesterday that played over here of uh, uh, uh the, the President and his wife were standing with Prince Charles and his wife for a photo and and the president and they were i guess they normally stand a certain way, and the President moved the prince out of the way and and sort of changed the order of the photograph um How would that be received? Poorly, especially if you are
3: within the royal um family and the court more generally. But, of course, I don't think anyone, possibly with the exception of the Queen, could really put Donald Trump in his place Mm -hmm. and get him to, in a sense, follow tradition, established order, because he seems to revel in causing chaos, in doing things his own way. And, of course, he seems to get a lot of political traction. He's very successful in doing that, because it splits, in essence, the public either for or against him.
0: Um uh, the the queen seemed to be smiling when greeting him she seemed quite jovial is there any way to gauge from any of this or is this just the role that she plays as the monarch and 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 it's like this with everyone
3: Well she has more experience than probably anyone else in the planet yeah. in dealing with uncomfortable social situations and of course also dealing with leaders who have let's say, um, dubious political um, opinions and backgrounds. So she is a master of these occasions. And so I don't think we can actually read what she's thinking. But if you follow closely the court, if you follow perhaps what might eventually transpire when it comes to reporting from people connected to senior members of the royal family, something I think will transpire about at least the mood of that whole meeting.
0: Uh, Prince Charles, uh, uh, obviously heavy on the environment. W- would this conversation have taken place back and forth between Prince Charles and, and Donald Trump?
3: Well, we know that Prince Charles is not just a big promoter of environmental causes, but he's also very forthright about that. And so is his son, Harry, who is also an attendant. So I could imagine that at least one of them, if not both of them, probably collared Donald Trump and put across the view that more needed to be done when it comes to global warming, protecting biodiversity, all these causes that are very dear to the royal family now.
0: It seemed as when the pomp and circumstance was going on, it was the queen and uh, the trumps and and the rest of the royals were kind of hovering around uh, the perimeter, uh, almost you know having their own little sidebar. Uh, how odd to have Harry in attendance, especially with the comments that have been made back and forth about his wife.
3: Certainly, um, a very awkward element of the whole banquet one can imagine especially with her being an American
0: uh, I'm sorry especially with her being an American you would think there would be a kinship there
3: well you think that would have been an asset but in this context, precisely because of the divisiveness of Donald Trump this is the contrary and on that basis we're not in the position of Winston Churchill who played up his American mother for the special relationship, and which which would have been possible with Meghan, as you say, although she has obtained British nationality, as I understand it now. But this is the opposite. It's been a cause of division, not of rapprochement.
0: All right, the agenda moving forward, what can we expect expect as this all wraps up? Well, I think
3: more and more will eventually leak out about how everything went behind the scenes, especially when it comes to the meeting with Theresa May. And also eventually, once you start having conversations with Nigel Farage and Boris Johnson, more will come out of that. And so when it comes to the agenda, a lot will depend on how things filter out about just what Donald Trump was responsive to and what, on the contrary, he would suggest were his red lines when it comes to the future relationship between the U.K. and the U.S.
0: It would have been fascinating to have been a fly on the wall in any of these discussions. Uh, Dr. Andrew Glencross has been with us, Senior Lecturer, Department of Politics and International Relations, Aston University in Birmingham. Andrew, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. My pleasure. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. China has placed a travel advisory... On the United States, the country's Minister of uh, Ministry of Culture and Tourism cited recent, quote, frequent shootings, robberies, and theft as the reason for its alert. Hell, if everybody thought that about the United States, uh, none of us would be traveling there. I mean, that's that's the land of the gun. Um, anyway, uh, recently, U.S. law enforcement agencies have repeatedly harassed Chinese citizens, they say, visiting the United States through exit and entry inspections, door-to-door interviews, and other means. To talk more about all of this, Charles Brown Burton is with us, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Brock University, and with us now. Charles, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good to talk with you, Scott. Uh, for months, Charles, we have been uh, bullied by China over the extradition uh, detainment of of the Huawei CFO and, and asking why the Chinese are picking on us and not the United States. Is that, what, is that what's happening here? Is, is, is this uh, turning a page?
2: Well, I mean, certainly the uh, Chinese also issued a travel advisory on Canada in January. Uh, In this sort of case, I think it's designed to try and make Chinese citizens decide to travel elsewhere and spend their significant dollars in other countries. You know, the Chinese tourists um, per capita buy the most luxury goods of any national group, so one could expect a hit in in uh, outlet malls and upmarket uh, shops in New York City and so on, uh, because the Chinese government has falsely indicated to the Chinese people that there's an increase in in shootings, robbery and theft. I I don't see that, and the Chinese are unhappy about um, the the U.S. government's initiative to try and address the espionage question by uh, refusing more visas and doing more inspections of Chinese nationals entering the United States and interviewing them when they're in the United States if there's some suspicion that those nationals might be purloining secrets and sending them back to China or engaged in activities such as harassment of persons of Chinese origin in the states. So China and the states are unhappy with each other, and this is yet another way for China to try and express its displeasure.
0: Have Chinese citizens been victimized in the United States? Um, Is there evidence of this?
2: traditionally they i mean i think that that thieves are aware that chinese people are inclined to carry cash mm. because so much of their um, dealings in china are cash based so you know it would be common for someone if they wanted to to mug somebody to choose someone who's chinese because there's a higher probability that they'll be carrying a, a large amount of cash on their on their person so i mean that's certainly um, a fact of life but it's been ongoing for decades. It's not a new phenomenon and Chinese people are more and more using credit cards so that that one seems to be dissipating a bit.
0: So is this about safety of its citizens or is this more leverage in a trade deal? I think it's really
2: about uh, trying to express its displeasure with the United States over the restrictions on Chinese visas and trying to hit the United States with uh, reducing the number of Chinese coming to the states to purchase luxury items. I mean, Chinese tourists are inclined to purchase those um, name-brand objects in the United States um, because there's such a high tax on them coming into China. So it's a real bargain if you're into high-end leather goods, clothing, handbags, and so on, to buy them in in the States. And certainly the Niagara Outlet Mall has a a lot of uh, service people who are able to speak to the Chinese customers in Mandarin directly Mm. because it's that much of a thing.
0: Wow. Uh, ironic that they are concerned about the the safety of Chinese citizens in the United States while they're detaining Canadians in China.
2: Well, certainly uh, China has become a, a dangerous country for anyone who is associated with diplomacy or higher level um, um, dealings with the Chinese regime or any kind of concern over human rights and non-government there's no question about that. Is this warranted? No, uh, absolutely not. I mean, there's no justification for it. It's entirely a a harassment. That's all it is.
0: And does this make uh, that much of an impact on tourism? You know, it it certainly has been noted, as you have, uh, that, that the luxury brands have been hurt. But as tourism goes, Um, how much is this going to put a dent in the North American tourism industry?
2: I think we will see uh, an impact. This sort of thing is taken seriously by Chinese citizens who are, um, you know, in fact, concerned about their safety when they travel abroad because their government's propaganda is that China is a safe country because of the nature of their regime, and uh, the West is is not. So I I would think that we'll probably see some impact of even... Just a government statement like this. Chinese
0: take this sort of thing seriously. Is tourism reciprocal? Are many Canadians and Americans touring China?
2: Not the same numbers by no. any means. I mean, it's obviously it's a wonderful tourist destination, but I think a lot of Canadians and Americans, because of the tensions between the two states, are deciding to travel elsewhere.
0: How long before China starts detaining Americans in China the way they have Canadians? Many have uh, many have been concerned that. Um what's happening here is uh Canada's getting bullied while Americans get you know America is getting away is the focus changing now and we'll see the harassment that Canada has received is that shifting to the US.
2: I think that we will see that as tensions increase there's no question about it that that you know tensions between the United States and China are rising there doesn't seem to be any off ramp for the two governments to reduce those tensions and I wouldn't be at all surprised if we start to
0: see um of, of Americans coming up, I know you got to run. Last question: What happens to America? What happens if two Americans would be detained by China the way these two Canadians have been?
2: I think the U.S. government would take, you know, serious measures against China in that sort of case. Um, I, I think the Americans just are are more committed to to the to the defense of their individual citizens as opposed to the larger issue. Whereas Canada, I think, is inclined to be concerned about the impact on on trade and other relations of pressing consular cases too hard. So I I do regret that our government doesn't have a
0: bit more backbone in these matters. So where is this going? What's the timeline on this? I mean, will this continue? I think so.
2: I think we're going to see it getting worse and worse in in time ahead, particularly after uh, after the G20 in Japan, if Mr. Trump and Mr. Xi can't come to some sort of resolution I expect things to deteriorate
0: rapidly. So. so no real trade solution is on the horizon here? Don't see one, frankly. All right, Charles Burton is with us, Associate Professor, Department of Political Science, Brock University. Charles, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.